0: This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: By the time 2009 and 2010 rolled around, forensic science had come a long way, particularly in the area of DNA. Josh Kieser had already been eliminated as a suspect in all the DNA tests that had been conducted on available evidence. Rick Walter, the sheriff who had reopened the Michelle Lawless murder case a nearly unprecedented move in law enforcement went to work on what physical evidence remained in the case. And that included Michelle's clothing, which had been kept in evidence. Walter had become aware of a new technology that could detect what's referred to as touch DNA, which is physical evidence that can be left behind. If someone grips something tightly, they could have left a little piece of themselves behind, even if they didn't spill blood or other bodily fluids. This opened new opportunities to solve the case and there were two places that seemed obvious to look for such DNA. One place would be Michelle's clothing, the other would be her body. Michelle's autopsy noted bruising on Michelle's wrists and indentations that could have been marks where fingernails were thrust into her skin. Those marks suggested she was carried by her wrist up the embankment over the guardrail and into her car. I want to take a moment to understand what was at play here. Imagine being Michelle's parent, You were there when you got the knock on the door. You lost your girl, the bubbly and freckled firecracker who loved to go camping and floating on the river. You trusted and hoped that law enforcement would find out who killed your girl and why. Those answers would never bring her back, but you watched as they made an arrest for your daughter's murder. You know that story didn't make much sense, but you believed he had confessed to his friends. You heard your daughter's friend testify they'd fought at a party. You never knew this Josh kid, but police and prosecutors were so sure they had the right guy. You watched the trial that sent him to prison. So many of the parts of the story didn't make sense. But a man was convicted. Justice had been served. Or at least you thought. Now a new sheriff comes along. And he tells you that it looks like they sent the wrong man to prison for your daughter's murder. The sheriff explains methodically how the evidence against Josh just doesn't hold water. It's a farce. And then you watch the man you believe kill your daughter, freed from prison. You understand it. You come to grips with it. But all those wounds are reopened and raw. You see the headlines and stories in the paper about this man who is fighting for his freedom. Your daughter seems to be playing a secondary role in this story of injustice. Your daughter has gone. This other man is free. And so are the real men who killed your daughter. You question everything law enforcement has told you as it relates to your daughter's murder. Now the new sheriff comes to you. He's been open with you. He's been kind. You know his wife, who teaches at the same school that Michelle's sister teaches now. You believe the sheriff is doing what he thinks is right. And now he tells you he wants to exhume your daughter's body. The killers may have left their DNA on the wrists of your daughter. And you do it. You say, okay. That is how much you want justice for Michelle. You're willing to bury her once more. Rick Walter knew it was not a sure thing. He told the family that. There was a good chance the evidence was no longer viable. But he thought it was worth a try, and so did Michelle's parents. By October 2013, when Michelle's body was exhumed, Michelle's mother, Esther, and father, Marvin, were divorced and not on speaking terms. They both watched from opposite sides of the cemetery as their daughter's casket was lifted out of the ground and the casket was opened. Swabs were taken from Michelle's wrists. The casket was closed, lowered, and buried once more. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing?
2: Him?
3: No, sir, not at any
2: time.
1: Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott
3: were vampired or pruned. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know.
0: But he answered. When we got talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it, Abbott just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit and he said, Yeah, they got they got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch.
3: Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called oh Morley Pay and X. Ex- That letter, I called Sheriff Farrell myself. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case
1: closed. That was it? That was it. Judge Richard Callahan of the Circuit Court of Cole County, Missouri released his ruling on February 17th 2009. Callahan opened up his ruling with an overview section. This is what it said. Trial by jury is a fundamental tenet of our criminal justice system. A populist notion in its very essence, the right to be judged by one's fellow citizens serves as an important check on the state's power to deprive its citizens of their liberty. A jury trial is intended by purpose and design to limit the power of prosecutors and judges to incarcerate. Just as important, however, is what the right to jury trial is not. A jury trial is not a shield for prosecutors to avoid difficult charging decisions. And deference to a jury verdict is not a substitute for meaningful judicial review. In the final analysis, our system of trial by jury is there to protect citizens from its own government, not to protect government from its own mistakes. There is little about this case which recommends our criminal justice system. The system failed in the investigative and charging stage, it failed at trial, it failed at the post-trial review, and it failed during the appellate process. The only bright note is the Scott County Sheriff, Rick Walter, who after being elected sheriff, reopened the investigation. Largely through his efforts, along with those of the Petitioner's Council, is the system finally writing itself with respect to Josh Keezer. Tragically, for the family of Michelle Lawless, the real killer or killers remain at large. Unquote. We've been through a lot in this podcast. Between the main story episodes and the bonus content, we've been through some 20 hours or so of content. We have gone over precisely what Callahan has talked about here. The system failed at the investigative phase, when it did not examine Mark Abbott as a suspect despite all the contradicting statements and signs. It failed at the charging stage, when Bill Farrell and Christy Baker Neal got an indictment from a grand jury and pressed forward with snitch statements that were contradictory. It failed at the trial phase, when Prosecutor Holsoff made several serious false assertions and closing arguments. It failed at the post-trial review when the judge failed to reverse course even though Chantel Kreider's testimony came into serious question. The system failed Josh, it failed his family, it failed Michelle, and it failed Michelle's family too. This is the ruling made by a judge who threw out the conviction. Callahan's ruling was 44 pages. We've been over so much of this already so I don't want to be too repetitive and go over all the evidence again. Callahan's report cited a lot of what we've already highlighted in respect to statements made by Ron Burton, Kathy Fowler, Bill Bonert, Helen Natvig, and others. He talked about there being no physical evidence, and he talked about the credibility of Josh's alibis. But I wanted to point out a few of the ways Callahan cited that Josh was railroaded by the system. We've talked about the Wooten report quite a bit with the information about Ray Ring. Callahan hit on that pretty heavy. But he also hammered hard on the fact that Schivitz's notes were not disclosed. Quote, Deputy Schivitz's undisclosed investigative notebooks contradict Abbott's identification of Josh Keezer and Nail's car. They state that Abbott was a suspect, which was denied at trial in response to questions by the prosecutor. Abbott said the person in the white car was not white, but was Mexican or Negro. Schivitz's type report states that the person was not Negro, but could have been Hispanic. This is a significant discrepancy which she could not explain. She testified she wrote down what Abbott said and that her notes generally are more accurate than the report she prepares from them. Her notes indicate that the white car had four doors and a high rear bumper with chrome on it. That description also is significantly different from any disclosed description and significantly different from Nail's car. Mangus's undisclosed written statement given to the Scott County prosecution undermines Mangus's claim at trial that he only gave his recantation statement to Rosner because of Rosner's threats. Mangus told Bill Stokes that he, quote, told Stokes the story Rosner wanted to tell, unquote. There is nothing in the document indicating that Mangus had given Stokes a written statement. The state has an obligation to disclose all exculpatory documents and cannot satisfy that obligation by simply referring to an interview without producing the written document. You might recall that Stokes reached out to Josh Kieser not long after the first few episodes of this podcast came out. And he told Josh that he personally delivered that interview report to Kenny Holsoff, the prosecutor. These failures by... Local and state officials to disclose information constitute a constitutional rights violation and were enough to throw out the conviction. But Callahan went further. Quote, As already indicated, Abbott's trial testimony was not credible. His account of finding the body contained inconsistencies with the facts. He did not mention the man in the white car until the fourth time he spoke to authorities. Then he gave only a vague description of the man as having a dark complexion the first time he mentioned him and in a subsequent interview as possibly being Hispanic. Josh Kieser does not fit that description and the attempts of prosecution witnesses to explain the discrepancy by saying that he might have had the vestiges of a tan or this dyed black hair might have made him look darker are not persuasive. Abbott's description of the car the man was driving was equally vague. He described it at various times as looking like a Mercury Sable, a Ford Escort, a Mercury Mercur, and a Saab, with four doors and a spoiler or something on the back. Then, four months later, after the investigation focused on Josh Keezer, Abbott identified Christy Nail's two-door white Plymouth Duster Hatchback, which had louvers rather than a spoiler, as the car Josh supposedly was driving. given his background, the very fact that Abbott supposedly was able to pick Josh Keezer and the Plymouth duster out of the photo lineups without hesitation cast doubt on the validity of those lineups.." Unquote. The ruling went on to explain how the testimony of the three jailhouse informants was not credible, and then he explained how Chantel Kreider's last-minute recognition of Josh Keezer at the trial was untrue. Quote, Josh Keezer has further demonstrated actual innocence by offering new evidence to negating evidence of guilt presented at the trial. The new evidence so thoroughly impeaches the trial testimony against Josh Kieser that no reasonable juror could convict him on the basis of remaining evidence of guilt presented at the trial. Abbott and Williams implicated each other in the murder in statements such as those to Ron Burton, Detective Bonert, Ryan Jones, Kathy Fowler, Helen Natvig, Robin Natvig, and Chantel Kreider. The significance of this testimony is not that it proves that Abbott or Williams is the killer, although there is now more evidence and better evidence against Abbott than there ever was against Josh Keezer. The significance is that Abbott was lying when he told the jury he recognized Josh Keezer as the person in the white car. In order to divert suspicion from himself, and that, therefore, Abbott's testimony against Josh Keezer must be discounted. The admissions and accusations and statements of Abbott and Williams over the years, at a minimum, suggest that Abbott was involved in the murder. Unquote. The judge's ruling addressed David Rosner as well. In point of fact, law and fairness, Rosner should never have been prevented from testifying at trial. The entire trial for the defense was conducted by defense attorney, Albert Lowe's. It would have been a simple compromise to have removed Rosner from the counsel table, treat him as a witness and deny the state's motion to disqualify the entire defense firm. It is not unusual for investigators of the attorney general's office or the local prosecutor's office to testify in criminal cases. And that happenstance does not result in disqualification. The same should have been true here. And finally, Callahan addressed Holshoff. Quote, the very end of his closing, Mr. Holshoff summed up as follows. We put him at the scene. We put a gun in his hand. We put the victim with him. We have got blood on his clothes. Ladies and gentlemen, based on all of this evidence, I urge you to find this defendant guilty of murder and armed criminal action. We now know that none of what Mr. Holsoff said in that final summary was true. Abbott's testimony putting him at the scene is totally discredited. No gun was ever found, and there is no credible evidence that he ever had a gun other than a realistic looking BB gun. There is now uncontroverted evidence that he was not at the Halloween party, which was the only evidence presented that he was ever in the presence of the victim. New testing indicates there was no blood on his jacket or in Christy Nail's car. In addition to his Brady claim, petitioner has met the heavier burden under Amerine of demonstrating actual innocence by clear and convincing evidence that undermines this court's confidence in the correctness of the judgment. As such, confidence in his conviction and sentence are so undermined that they cannot stand and must be set aside. Accordingly, judgment is entered in favor of the petitioner against respondent. Petitioner's convictions for murder in the second degree and armed criminal action are hereby set aside and held for naught. Josh's exoneration made headlines all over the state of Missouri. Kenny Holsoff put out this statement. Today's opinion goes to great lengths to cast doubt on the credibility of the state's witnesses. But 12 jurors looked these witnesses in the eye, dispassionately listened to their testimony and found them to be credible. Later, Holsoff added, I remain convinced that Joshua Keyser, a member of the violent Latin Kings gang, is guilty of this crime. Holsoff served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1997 through 2009. He's now a lobbyist for the Kit Bond Strategy Group, with offices in St. Louis, Kansas City, and Washington, D.C. His bio says, quote, He established a strong national reputation as a leader with integrity on the House Committee on Standards of Official Conduct, also known as the Ethics Committee, unquote. He's also known for co-authoring a law that helped individuals with disabilities. A 2008 Associated Press investigation found that in addition to the Keiser case, Prosecutorial errors by Holsoff led to four death sentence reversals, although in those cases, subsequent trials led to new convictions of the defendants. In 2010, Missouri Circuit Court Judge Warren McElwain declared Dale Helmig innocent of killing his mother in 1993. The judge declared Helmig to be, quote, "...the victim of a fundamental miscarriage of justice." Later the judge said Kenny Holsoff knew or should have known that the testimony presented was false that Dale Helmut tacitly admitted killing his mother. Later the judge wrote quote, Even though the prosecution could not find a witness to substantiate this allegation, that did not stop them from trying to put the unproven and very inflammatory fact before the jury. Kenny Holsoff put at least two innocent men in prison. So at that point, I, I know that you made some statements in the media. Now it's time to really find out who did this. Um, right. So then you really go to the task of trying to collect evidence, and uh, um, which you, you know, again, you've been kind of doing all that all along. You know, interviewing people, um, but you're really trying at this point to kind of get get the physical evidence going.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was because at that point it whenever we reopened this case, we opened it as Michelle Lawless murder, you know, obviously, uh, but somewhere in there and we never, we never really changed that heading. We, but it, it kind of turned into the Josh Keiser case, you know, if that makes sense, because there was a lot of stuff pointing other directions, but we were still, we were investigating, kind of investigating Josh reinvestigating and to see who may have helped him. So, that kind of transitioned into the Josh Kieser case mm-hmm. uh and then when everything that we that came out in in the uh, the hearing and and uh, Judge Callahan says he's actually innocent then uh it kind of then it went back to the Michelle Wallace murder yeah so it was uh with all the twists and turns and 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 I don't know that you, that uh, you have enough time uh, to go down to through all the details of this of this twisting turning road uh, to uh, to try to explain everything because it, it it's it's one of the most I don't know, convoluted crazy uh, stories that you've ever tried to follow you yeah. know yeah. Uh, there's a lot of players in it there's a lot of there's a lot of, turns out in my opinion there's a lot of dirty cops uh, that, that covers it up there's uh, uh, there's uh, there's the uh, obviously, real bad guys. And I'm not sure who the bad guys were in this whole process. Some of them carried badges, some of them sold drugs. So uh, then it it changed over to the uh, to the Michelle Lawless murder. And then we started uh, concentrating on who did this if Josh didn't do it. Yeah. In July of 2009,
1: A rather extraordinary thing happened. A new witness came forward. A witness saying he stopped at the crime scene the night of the murder. His name is Dallas Butler. Southeast Missouri reported that Butler was riding his Honda motorcycle past the crime scene around the time of the murder. He was a bouncer and he was on his way home from his job. He said he pulled off the exit ramp and saw two vehicles, a small, dark sedan and a lighter Ford truck parked near the exit ramp. He stopped and asked if they needed help. He said he saw a woman in the driver's seat, her head bowed and hands on the wheel. Butler said she did not appear to be injured. There was a man outside the car. He was described as about 160 pounds, slender, and wearing a red hat. When Butler asked if they needed to help, the man said no. Butler said he thought the girl might have been having car trouble and was upset by that, or maybe she'd had too much to drink. At first, he assumed the man was there to help the girl, but he also said he had an uneasy feeling. He said the man seemed nervous. Butler went on his way, but he didn't feel good about it. Hours later, he found out from a news report that a girl had been murdered there. He said he went to the Justice Center in Scott County a day later to report what he'd seen. He said he told the receptionist that he had been through the area just before the murder. The woman said someone with the Sheriff's Department would be contacting him soon. But that never happened. The Southeast Missourian didn't report it at the time, but Butler would later be asked to do a lineup. Butler picked Kevin Williams out of that lineup. I would like to point out that such an identification after so many years would rightfully be challenged by any defense attorney. It was a dark night, and it was some 17 years prior to this lineup. Could the memory of a person's face be etched into the mind of a passerby for nearly two decades? Only Butler knows for sure. But Butler talked to others about this incident. One source told me he identified Williams when my source showed him a photo of Williams when they ran into each other at the supermarket. I wasn't able to reach Dallas Butler. I sent him a text and I left him a message on his voicemail. But he gave a similar statement to the show 48 Hours. I received a call from another source who told me that in the late 1990s, Butler told him about the incident. He said Butler didn't mention any names, but he said he carried around a lot of guilt at the time for not staying at the scene and helping the girl. It drove him to tears. Butler has said he thought he would hear from the sheriff's department if they felt they needed him. He assumed they had found the killer. Okay, so um, obviously you have to go through uh, all this evidence and re-interview people. I know you chase down a lot of leads and you know I can get into that but um, let's talk a little bit more about just uh, when, when you go when, when you're trying to build a case um, especially one that's gone through all of this back and forth and there's so many contra you know there's so many contradicting statements and whatnot um, you you're gonna be you have to go back and kind of you like kind of almost start over and uh, look look at the evidence again, really hard. Um, and one of the things that you did was um, seek out uh, some reconstructionists, right, right, to kind of try to piece this thing back back together and how you know how did all this transpire at at the scene that night. Um, so, kind of walk me through what you asked the reconstructionists to do. You, I think you hired two different firms. Right. What did you ask them to do? And then, you know, kind of what did they find out? We just, what
0: we, we presented them with uh, the evidence at the scene. Uh, we, what the witness, which, though I say witness, uh, the first person at the scene that, that, that missed a being there, Mark Abbott, you know, Mark says that he reaches through the, the, the door's closed. He reaches through the window, uh, and she's, um, she's laying across the passenger seat. He reached through the window and he picks her up, sets her up. Now she's a small girl. I, I she, I think she weighed maybe 98 pounds. She's a small girl. The window was about half open and maybe a little over I don't know, anyway, it's it's roughly uh, 50% open. And he said he reaches through the window and he grabs her, according to him, he grabs her by her left shoulder or clothing and sets her up. And she gurgles and he panics, he says, and he turns her loose and she falls back over in that seat and then he takes off. With that information, we had a, a... Firm out of Canada, and he reconstructed uh, with uh, live, I guess, uh, models. Models, thank you. Uh, and he used several different cars, about the same height, where, where the window would be about the same height on the on on our victim's car. Uh, and he used different different young ladies, where he would try to set them up. And he proved that, that that was almost impossible to do. And
1: uh, so, uh, l- l- let me just interject here to say that Michelle's body uh, was found uh, slumped across the console into, into the, the passenger, the seat. passenger yeah. seat.
0: she was still she she was sitting in her. Uh, if if you were sitting in your in the driver's seat and just laid over into the passenger seat, that's how you that's how she was found. And, uh, he, so with, with his, using his live models, by every time that he would raise one up, they would, they would fall in a different, um, position than what they were when he picked them up. I know, I understand using live models is difficult, but he, he was able to determine that that didn't, that there's no way that could happen, uh, by reaching through the window, by him physically doing it. We hired another firm, uh, and that's just kind of the short part of it. We hired another firm out of California, and and I, I hired people who didn't just work for prosecution. They worked for the defense and the prosecution. So we didn't have somebody that was just slanted toward one way or the other. And this we hired another firm out of L.A. And he his conclusion was that that everything that Mark said was impossible. Uh, that he, he used he used calculations, weights, measurements, height by reaching through the window. Uh being, being marked size, the the window would have been cutting into his uh, midsection, probably his stomach area, and it would put so much pressure on him that it would have been hard to do, and he would have been reaching so far over into the vehicle that one foot would have been off the ground, and the only thing that would have been touching would have been his toes. And for him to lift that amount of weight, there's absolutely no way he could have done that without actually leaving both feet, leaving the ground. It's kind of, that's kind of the rough, uh, long and short of it. One thing that I wanted somebody to be able to prove and they did it. I didn't, I, after they gave me the conclusion, then I, I asked these questions later. Uh, what about if she was shot the final, uh, and I'm not sure if it was the final shot, but the shot that went through her back and out her right breast and she was laying on her right forearm. And the bullet lodged in her forearm. If what would be the chances and the, the odds that whenever you picked her up, that she would fall back exactly where that trajectory of that bullet would have went through, passed through her body into her forearm, that was it, it was impossible. There's no way that that would happen. That it would land. She would land exactly in the same position that where. So whenever she was shot, my thought was that she was never moved after that. And both of my both of those reconstructionists confirmed that that said there's no she was never moved and he couldn't have done it the way he said and she was never moved after that shot went through her back.
1: So I'm going to break this down in a few minutes, but there's a little more evidence that you need to be aware of before we do that.
0: We, I think, uh, one of those, uh, the, the the young man from Canada that we we contacted, uh, he was working on that about the same time of the DNA, and then I hired the lo- the firm out of LA later.
1: Okay.
0: And so, okay. Uh, Yeah, we we Sorry. had we had contacted the 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 DNA scientist from out of out of Holland to do touch DNA because at the time, uh, we contacted the FBI, the FBI wasn't really doing a whole lot of touch DNA at that time. And they said, uh, at best they could, they could put it on their books and it would be a few years down the road before they got to it. And, uh, actually what, what kind of turned us on to the, uh, the Dutch was, uh, it was, a, it was I was watching 48 hours one night. Uh, and there was a uh, murder that happened in Colorado and these uh, uh, the Icon booms done a uh, worked a case in Colorado where the, uh, they were able to get this young man out of prison because of using touch DNA. Uh, it was It was similar to our case and uh, the night that I was watching that on, on 48 hours, it was just one of those because I, I wasn't a regular I didn't. I didn't watch it that much. It just. It just so happened that I was watching it that night. I contacted my detective and I said, "You are you are you watching this?" Uh, he he said, "I'm watching it right now." I said, "We need to contact these people. There's a chance they'll never. will never get through. If we've got to give it a shot." Um, they they just happened to be in Colorado after this boy had been released from prison. We go out and meet with them and they decided that they would take our case. So. That's how we got connected with with the Ikonbooms out of out of the Netherlands, and um, uh, so. so. So
1: let me clarify one thing. Uh, you, you took DNA from two different places, right? You took some from Michelle's wrist after you exhumed her body. Correct?
0: That was that was later. Oh,
1: that yes, was later. That was So, later. so, this, so the Eichmann booms or oh. however you say they're the Ikonbooms. Yeah. Uh They were they were testing DNA. Uh, they were testing the sh- uh, shirt.
0: They were testing, yeah. So what? what they were doing at the time, they were, t- they were testing touch DNA of, of, skin cells left behind and they were having a lot of success with it in the Netherlands. And, and they, then they started actually branching out from what I understand into other countries because they were, people were really interested in this and they was, they was be able to back this up with science. This wasn't just, you know, at, at the, at the time the United States, we were, we were still behind, yeah. you know, we, we weren't up, up to that yet. Uh, so, um, uh, I met with them. They were in Colorado at the time, but they were going back home to the Netherlands, and and um, and they said they would take the case. So we had we had uh, bagged everything up that we had, clothing from Michelle, uh, at the time, and took it over and had them do some testing off of it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um. So, uh, to kind of cut to the chase, DNA was found on uh, Mark Mark Abbott's DNA was found on that clothing, correct?
0: It was amazing. Uh, they they the the last that we had the information we had was it was consistent with an abbot. Okay. So it could have been, uh, and from what I understand, and I am, believe me, I'm not I don't understand I'm not a I don't understand DNA. I can't even spell DNA. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it just because they're identical, you know th- that there could be a difference between their DNA, but they were able to pull skin cells from off of Michelle's clothing. And it was in locations other than where Mark had said he touched her. We tested that to see if if his DNA was on her shoulder. That's where he said he touched her. But there was other, uh, you could actually, when you picked it up, her clothing up and looked looked at it, you could still see grip marks from the, from probably from the night that she was murdered. Oh, wow. So that's, that's where we we tested the shoulder and then we tested other parts uh because it was really amazing that
1: that that, know, held like that, that. that helped that's yes. amazing yeah yeah okay so mark abbott's dna was found on michelle's clothing in two areas one on the shoulder that supports his statement and another area that does not fit his story at all now dna between twins can be differentiated but the Dutch scientists didn't drill down far enough to make that determination. But think about it, does it really even matter? Only one Abbott twin has ever talked about being at the car and pulling Michelle up real easy. That's Mark Abbott. So we have Mark's DNA on Michelle's clothes, and we have multiple crime reconstructionists saying Michelle's body was never moved after she was shot in the back, the bullet lodging in her arm. Another observation that suggests that Michelle was never moved was the back of her neck did not show any blood transfer. Michelle's hair was covered with blood from the blunt force hit she took at the bottom of the embankment, but her hair draped forward along her face and toward the floorboard. Had Michelle been pulled up, Reconstructionists surmised that her hair, and thus blood, would have fallen on her neck and the collar of her sweater. So let's follow the logic. If Mark Abbott left DNA on Michelle's body, and he didn't lift her up as he described... And if he left his DNA on her body in a place that could not have been reached through a half-open window, then that would heavily suggest that Mark Abbott left DNA on Michelle's body before she was killed. And if that's true, then that means that Leon Lamb was probably not the last person to see Michelle alive. That distinction, based on the evidence brought forward by Walter, probably belongs to Mark Abbott. So now, Mark Abbott, based on this evidence, is the man most likely to last see her alive. A person admitting to being at the crime scene. A man who claims he reported the crime. A man who claims to have returned to the crime scene. A man who implicated his buddy Kevin Williams. A man who told a person he barely knew he took care of that bitch. A man who confided in at least one cellmate that he shot and killed a girl. A man Kevin Williams told his friends was involved in a murder. This is a man whose story changed more than 13 times in different statements to police. This is a man who said the victim was wearing rings when she was not. This is a man who responded, quote, from Benton, unquote, when told the last name Lawless. This is the man who told Chief Deputy Tom's Beardsley the window was rolled all the way down. This is the man who went to a girl's house after the murder and said he had blood on his hands and needed to wash them. This is the man who told officers he saw Ray Ring in the car. This is the man who told police that Josh Keezer was the man in the car. This is the man who sat in front of a jury and put an innocent man he never met at the crime scene when the entirety of his story about trying to help Michelle appears to be a lie. And
0: on her on one of her arms, she had what appeared to be some type of uh, wounds. Uh, It looked like somebody maybe had grabbed grabbed her arm and there was uh, what appeared to be uh, somebody with maybe some long fingernails that had actually dug into her skin and her arms. There was four on one side of her arm and one on the other. It looked like maybe the thumb on one side and four fingers on the other that may have dug into her skin and we decided to uh, uh, hopefully, uh, that's whenever I made the decision and then had to approach the family to see if they would be interested in exhuming her body uh, to try to find any kind of DNA evidence that, uh, that maybe that person may have left um, because there, was, there wasn't any collected, we couldn't find anything that was really collected on her at the time and i was hoping that this would be uh this would be a long shot but maybe uh it would be preserved and we would be able to get some
1: um so the uh so there was kind of new technology that existed now that didn't exist back then that the touch dna
0: right? ex- exactly and and with something uh where, where somebody had grabbed her that hard i you know they would they was hopefully it was bound to leave something behind um it was going to be a closed casket, uh, and I, remember, I knew that it was. So um, I, I approached the family, and, and everybody was uh, was on board with going ahead and, and doing this. I also talked to the judge. Uh, he had wrote an order. We decided he decided to go with us on that, and we exhumed the body. Um, the day that we exhumed the body to to examine it was when the Funeral director at the time was also the coroner at the time. Um, told me that he remembered those wounds and he had cleaned those wounds out um, before uh, the funeral. And I, I was, I was kind of surprised. He said the only reason why he done that was because one of the family members wanted to look at it, look at her one more time, and before they closed the casket. And so he had um, prepped her for. Um, viewing. for viewing I asked him if how he cleaned those wounds and he said he remembered washing them out with soap yeah. uh, which would have been uh, that would be devastating to our case if there was any DNA there because of the soap and the water at the time probably would have killed anything that was involved there as far as any kind of DNA trace yeah. and he'd also seal those I, I, he remembered sealing those with some type of I don't know what it was, it, I, lack of a better term, maybe wax or something that would, it was have like a skin tone, color uh, to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, it was, he'd seal those, but, and even with that, I was hoping that maybe he hadn't cleaned them out that
1: That much. That much. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, we exhumed the body. We, I had uh, uh, DNA scientists come in and actually uh, try to retrieve some of those, some of that. And we took samples. From from that and was not able to get anything
1: yeah. uh,
0: from from those wounds.
1: So you were out here and you saw the family out here. Can you just describe? I mean, it had to be. I mean, there's a lot of emotions involved with this. Obviously, I mean, you just talked about uh, a family member, completely, understandably, wanting to to see, you know, Michelle one more time. I think anybody could relate to that um but there's also the emotions of having to dig up a body again um what did what did you witness that day
0: well we uh we had came out that day we obviously we videoed from start to finish um when we took her uh, from the grave from the gravesite back to the gravesite and, and continued to video the whole thing um uh, mom and dad was both here uh, they were at separate places and uh they were uh, they were both again they were both on board with us doing this i I can't i can't even imagine uh what they were going through so i won't even pretend to 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 understand that um you know again they were just hoping that we would be able to come up with something um that would point us in the right direction of of who may have been the one to do this
1: now i talked to uh i've talked to marvin lawless uh one time at least so far and uh, th- those those emo- all these emotions are still really raw with him and 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 he told me they had th- they did a, s- a second funeral um which by the way he said that he had to lead um did they have a private moment like that did you see any of that or did maybe that happen after everybody left
0: no marvin i mean we we did um and um you know marvin was here and he um you know I, again that for him to be able to do that is uh, was is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, a lot of respect for for him and, and the family. but uh, you know that he did he did tell me that one time. It's like he buried his daughter twice, you yeah. know and and that's pretty that's pretty tough. It's heavy, you know, on a family, and you know, and then that kind of weighs on on us because uh, I decided to do this and and uh, it's like, God, I'm putting this family through this
1: yeah whole thing again. yeah. so there's all of this is just a reminder of the human side of of things. Um, You know, uh, Michelle was 19 years old. She was full of life. She was deeply loved and cared for. You know, you put, you you know, just the family has had to endure this whole story um, for, you know, since 1992. And it's very, very real for them. And uh the things that have happened um have harmed them even more than they should have already been harmed by the death of their daughter. And that's part of the tragedy of this entire story. One of the things that um someone has brought up is the uh Ricky Clay. If, um, uh, I don't know, meeting event that that was happening uh, back in that time. And uh, I, I wanted yeah. to ask you about that, if you wouldn't mind. Like, so um, th- this happens. Uh, so there's Ricky Clay is a person who's in prison uh, on at that point on death row. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a lot of different circumstances that make one question whether he actually committed that murder as well. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why to think that maybe and a lot he,
3: of the same players too, Bob.
1: Yeah. He didn't do it. Right. So um, yeah. Ricky, Ricky clay is uh, this, this, this was the murder of a, a man named Randy uh, Martindale. Yeah. Um, in 94. So it was a couple of years after Michelle's death, but um, anyway, so he's, he's on death row at this point. You're, you're out of prison. You've been exonerated. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. uh, So so you're at an event where they're they're trying to raise awareness to try to get him off death row. Um, So can you kind of take me like, you know, how'd you end up there? What happened there? Well, as you can imagine,
3: um, as an exoneree, whenever there's a case that comes up um, for a man that um, an attorney believes is innocent or a group believes that is innocent, they do the smart thing. And they reach out to um, men who have been through it, that understand it, right? To, to, to rally the voices together, to bring them together. And I can't, I can't exactly remember who reached out to me. Someone did. Um, it may have been Charlie Wise or Steve Snodgrass. And they informed me about this rally in the uh, Capitol building in Jeff City, in Jefferson City, Missouri. And I, I figured, well, why not? I'll go. Right. I mean, and it was really more than why not. Ricky Clay was also p- prosecuted by Kenny Holshoff. I have experience with that man. I know how deceptive he is. I know how unethical he is. I know how he moves. Um, I experienced it firsthand. and I, I, I sat in a courtroom and listened to that man lie blatantly. I knew that if Ricky Clay was prosecuted by Kenny Holsoff, then Ricky Clay was most likely innocent. And that says something about Kenny Holsoff's character, that if he's prosecuting a man, my first go-to is he's probably innocent. So I had gotten to know a little bit about Ricky's case already because uh, my attorneys had spoke to him prior to my exoneration and we had become aware of him prior to my exoneration but knowing that there was going to be this rally and becoming even more familiar with it at that point I decided I had to go so I went I didn't make any fanfare of it I walked in I sat in the back and I just watched and listened and I seen Ricky's son and his attorneys, they were sitting up at a table and we were in a, um, small room. I wouldn't, it was not a large room and it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of pomp and circumstance. There was a few media outlets that were there, a few, um, journalists, reporters, there were no television cameras that I saw. It doesn't mean they weren't there. I just don't remember them. You a matter of fact, they were there, but I went, I just kind of like my own business. And while I'm sitting in there, that's when I heard that, um, you know, one of the things that was they were concerned that Ricky was going to be executed and that they had DNA testing and that they're, um, they had run out of funding for it. So I immediately stood up and I figured, well, why not? You know, and uh, I got this money because, of you know, an injustice that was done to me by Kenny Holshoff and by Bill Farrell. So I stood up and volunteered ten thousand dollars to Ricky's defense to retest the DNA. At the time, you know, afterwards, you know, they then brought me up to the table and had me speak to the group. And afterwards, I wasn't paying attention really to who was sitting in the crowd. Right. I then went back and sat down. And then after, after it was over, you you know, I had a couple of media members that they wanted to speak to me and things of that nature. I looked over and I saw Kevin Williams. And he saw me and, uh, he approached me and he was, uh, immediately tried to smooth me over and manipulate me and try to convince me that he didn't have anything to do with the Angela Michelle Lawless murder. That was his go-to. And, you know, I told him, I said, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then you should talk to Rick Walter. But you and I both know that, you know, something we know you were there. And, uh, you need to talk. And you, you know, either you did it, Kevin, or you know who did it. And he put his hand in my hand and Kevin Williams can tell anybody anything he wants to. I was there, it was man on man. I put my hand in his and I squeezed his knuckles and I looked him in his eyes and I told him, I find anything that proves you killed Angela Michelle Lawless, I will put you in prison for the rest of your life.
1: Those of you who may be listening and have been following all the comments on the Lawless Files Facebook discussion page by now have seen this side of Josh. Josh considers himself to be direct, some would say confrontational. This is who Josh is at his core when it comes to this case. This is the side of Josh that makes people uncomfortable. Sometimes, and I've told him this, he makes me uncomfortable. Josh doesn't care about that too much, even if it damages his popularity. Josh has lived this case for 29 years. So if you go on a discussion page and ask questions that appear to be looking in a direction other than what Josh has come to understand, he is going to confront you. Josh Kieser served 16 years in one of the roughest prison cultures in the country. Josh has been committed to uncovering the truth since 1993. We're going to get back to Kevin Williams in a moment, but Josh confronted Williams face-to-face. And he confronted Mark Abbott as well. Mark Abbott emailed Josh while Mark was still in prison. This was in 2013. I'm going to read parts of this email exchange because Josh confronted Mark with a lot of different questions. But before we get to the emails, I want to replay this clip from Mark's deposition in Josh's trial.
3: And you know, that's kind of the moral in me.
1: That's just the way it is. I was just willing to take whatever it was. You know what I mean? It was like something that wasn't right with that girl. And to me, after what I'm going up there, I think, hey, you know, it's like to me, I was calling for an ambulance for her in my mind. February 1, 2013, 5.51 p.m. From Mark Abbott to Josh Kieser. Subject line. Bet this is a surprise. Well, what can I say to you? I don't have an answer or a excuse. Put blame where it was. I could run it all down to you, and you may understand or you may not. I don't know. The fault is mine in a way. If I would have thought, instead of considering Pharaoh, spelled F-A-R-R-O-W, and his team was right, it would have been different. That is a big word for the cost. Do you have any questions? Going to the weight pile and be back at 6.30, I have my own thought. I just don't know if they are correct. Mark Abbott February 2, 2013, 1.06 AM To Mark T. Abbott from Josh Keezer Subject line, bet this is a surprise. I've just been able to read this message. Interesting. This is definitely unexpected. Surprise is an appropriate word to describe this as well. I hope there's a purpose to it. I don't know what to expect and I won't solicit anything. I assume you have something you want to say, so I'll just ask questions and ask you to be straight to the point, transparent, and honest. I'll carefully consider your answers. If you feel like I won't understand, help me understand. I want to understand. Tell me everything. I want to know every detail and every name involved. I'm listening. I'll read everything carefully. I'm interested in the truth, Mark nothing else. If you're willing to share the truth with me, it would be a step in the right direction for you. As long as you're honest, transparent, and forthright, I'll listen and offer a willing eye to your messages. I'll consider everything you have to say. Do I have any questions? Yes. I think you know I have questions. I'll just get straight to it and ask a handful. I want to know everything. Who killed Michelle Lawless? How? Why? Did you kill her? Did your brother kill her? Were either of you involved in her murder? Who killed Michelle Lawless? Be honest. The Smoke and Mirrors Act has to stop with you. How much of what you're telling me has Farrell known and been involved in? How long has he known? What role has Farrell played in his twisted tragedy and injustice? Did he ever tell you to do or say anything illegal? To your knowledge, has he told others to do and say anything illegal? Did Farrell tell you to implicate me in the lawless murder? Did Farrell and you work together to knowingly frame me for murder? Believe it or not, I know the answers to some of these questions, many of them. I know things you and Farrell and others don't think I know, and I'm learning more and more every day. I'm interested in your answers, though. I'm hoping you'll be honest. I've been investigating this case since the first day I was erroneously brought into it. I'm a driven man, Mark. I'm going to close this case at some point. When I do, Farrell's going to be exposed. When I do, someone may end up on death row or with a life without sentence. Maybe that doesn't have to be you or your brother, maybe it does, but that part's up to you. None of this is personal to me. I've gotten beyond personal. I've forgiven you and your brother years ago. I took both of you to the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and gave your offenses to him. He's better suited to carry them than I am. He's more merciful than I am as well. It's not about me anymore. It's about the lawless girl. It's about everybody that suffered through this. Men like Rick Walter and myself and several other investigators are determined to close this case completely and we will succeed. You need to start telling the truth, Mark. If you want to talk to me, talk to me. If you want to message me, tell me the truth. The fatal error of everyone that conspired to frame me for murder, rather than another poor soul, is the presumption that I would somehow forever remain the boy, once bound in shackles, confusion, and fear. I'm not bent on vengeance. Vengeance is God's. I would prefer justice. I would prefer closure. I would prefer healing. What would you prefer, Mark? So you notice here in this first email, Josh takes a direct but cordial approach, and he's hoping to get information out of Mark Abbott about all of the questions that he has, a lot of the questions that we've raised here on the podcast. You'll notice as we go along, though, that Josh's tactics change as Mark kind of sticks to his, his talking points. So uh, here's the next email. February 1, 4.03 p.m. From Josh Kieser to Mark Abbott Subject line: The Lawless Case in response to request to connect to exchange messages I've included the Lawless Case as part of the subject title for official purposes. I'm not sure what to expect from your request to exchange messages. This is a first. You've never reached out to me before. You've never attempted to speak to me before without presumption or knowledge of your reasons for contacting me. I'm listening. What would you like to communicate with me, Mark? What's on your mind? February 1, 9.36 p.m. From Mark Abbott to Josh Keezer. You are correct. I have never reached out to you. Years ago, I also went to prison, as you know, and before I did go, I thought that Bill Farrow was capable of doing the job that was required. I'm not making excuses for myself. I was young, and the guy that pulled up to that phone looked like that picture. And when they gave me that lineup, I looked right at your pick and pointed at it, and they also put it in a set of cards, which I also picked out. It didn't take me long. That is the truth. Believe it if you want to or not. But after looking back at that day, I fully in my mind think that you was hung when the sheriff and state rod jumped through my ceiling when I picked you out. I can't give you an explanation for that day. That's just the way it happened. And that is probably the start of a fucked up case also years ago when i got here i seen how our judicial system was fucked up and i thought about you and i won't put any juice on it i only talked to my family at that time and i requested for my mom to look your family up and somehow my mother had a friend that was in a treatment center down south i think Tai, new madrid somewhere but your mother please forgive me for mentioning her She was in a group with this girl that knew my mom, and she told my mom that your mother was persistent on saying and accusing me of the murder and setting her boy up for it, and my mom refused to do any kind of thing like that at the time. But at that time, I felt something wasn't correct, and I didn't know what. Bill Farrow did such a good job at making you a guilty person that I even believed it. When I grew older and this bit go mellow in my mind, I thought a lot about you. I'm not asking for you to forgive me or anything, because if our spots were switched, I don't think I could forgive you, or should I say forget. There is so many ifs, I could go on and on with the word if. I am not asking you for anything. If you was writing me, I also would not know how to look at it. I can try to push all this on Bill Farrow but I am also at fault for not trying to investigate that case more. I sat back and thought what they was doing was the truth, and I really, at a period of time, thought you did it. Do you want me to explain it from start to finish, Mark? Okay, so to break that email down, Mark is trying to make nice with Josh. He's laying the blame at Bill Farrell. Mark has no idea the amount of knowledge that Josh has acquired over the years, specifically from private investigator Jim Sullins, but also his attorneys. Now the exchange gets a little confusing because in between the email exchanges, Josh missed an email from Mark where Mark was asking who he was picking for the Super Bowl, San Francisco or Baltimore. So here's the next email based on the Super Bowl communication. February 1st, 2013, 824 AM. I have no interest in discussing football with you. I have no interest in casual conversation. I have no interest in friendship. You and I both know that. Stay on topic, Mark. Answer the questions I've asked you regarding the heinous murder of Angela Michelle Lawless and the process of framing me for her murder. Answer the questions I've asked. Answer them honestly and truthfully. Tell me what you've been unwilling to tell everyone for so long. You and I both know you participated in this murder. I've had 20 years to look through the paperwork and consider the evidence. I've spoken with investigators and read through files they've compiled. I've seen the transcripts. I've read through your statements of record. You and I both know you know far more than you've ever said in any official statement of public record. I intend to know what you know. What are your intentions, Mark? To ask me about football or to tell me what you know? February 2, 2013, 108 p.m. From Mark Abbott to Josh Kieser. No, we are not friends. I'm cool with that. That is where you are wrong. You look at paperwork from a detective department that screwed you over and that probably said anything. Hell, Keezer, you seem smart. Look at the, all the lies they said, and probably wrote to make the entire picture look like you murdered that girl, but now you say that these public records... Come on, Keezer, keep an open mind. Me and you don't have to get along. Even though you're a smartass, I still try to keep my mind open. You're looking at a one-sided thing, twist of words are ugly, and stop accusing me of framing you for a murder. Hell, I thought you were responsible for it for a period yes i had my doubt but the picture on the canvas rick walters quote was that you knew her and you was at a party with her hell i thought you knew her for years and i see now you didn't got to go eat february 2 2013 108 pm from mark to josh keezer this whole time you have thought you was set up by a bunch of people when in reality it was one person spinning a web in some kind of way you don't even know me I'm fine to keep it that way I can tell you are no different than Rick and you have tunnel vision just like him and just like Bill Farrell had so to me you are dangerous and Rick is dangerous today I think Bill Farrell for some sick reason needed a conviction and I also think Rick has some of those same traits in him and that is no good so really there is nothing to try and accomplish I also know that you copy and paste to Rick I don't give a fuck I'll make it easier for you I'll put him on my list. I got Cade and I'll add Rick. If it seems to me that you, for some reason, think I'm capable of such a mean crime, may I ask you why? It was a rumor, which is the ugliest thing in the world, that you have all kinds of violent charges in your past. You picked fights with deadly weapons and that all played a part in the theory of you being a killer. Now, did Bill say this? I can't remember, but it was said and it was the truth. Or was it? See how things get started? At an old age, I can see that rumor and things like that are a very ugly thing for anyone. Oh, I almost forgot. I can call you if you want to be more of a smartass or you have more questions. I feel that if you keep an open mind, I could clear some things up for you. I just don't know what's got you so twisted about me, and I'm sure it is some kind of statement that the words got all fucked up or a lot of them. Oh yeah, after your sentencing, I seen Kurt Lowe's at a bar. We drank a few drinks, and your name came up, and he told me, Listen, Mark, that boy had nothing to do with that murder. And I said, Kurt, I didn't say he did. I said he was at that telephone. And for a long time, problem was I wasn't 100% at the time. By 94, I got introduced to drugs, and all that was put in the back of my mind, so I'm making an excuse for nothing being 100% that it was you at that phone, Maybe. By that time, drugs was in my life, and I wasn't the same. Meth is a mean thing. It consumed me, and I'm paying for that now. Let's see. I didn't get into drugs until 1994 or late 93. Not for sure. I did a job for a guy, and that was it. But I'm sure that there are people that say things that got their off a charge, and I'm sure Rick in some way has paid for it by letting them off or something like that. Question for you, what is the biggest thing that makes you believe in some way that I would even be capable of such a crime? I have never had a violent charge in my life, nothing in any way, and what is so twisted is that you feel I'm lying to you. Notice so far in this email exchange, Mark has not answered Josh's direct questions. In this next email, you'll see Josh is kind of growing impatient with that, kind of changes his voice a little and, and starts to provoke and to get under the skin of Mark. February 2, 2013, 1151 p.m. From Josh Kieser to Mark Abbott. I'm concerned with one thing, truth. Feelings? I'm not really concerned with them. This isn't about you. It most certainly isn't about Bill Farrell, and it actually has next to nothing to do with Rick Walter. I'm secondary. It's about Angela Michelle Lawless, you pompous dumbass. She's primary. It's always been about her. She was the poor soul murdered. Who gives a shit about your feelings? I don't. Have I been a smartass in this conversation? No. I've asked questions. I've been willing to listen. I've stayed on topic. I've been blunt. I've been honest and forthright. Am I a smartass? Admittedly, yes, when it suits me. It's preferable, though, to a dumbass, to being a dumbass. Or as one person described you recently, quote, an evil twit, unquote. Whether I give a shit about you or not, like you or not, Believe you're a killer or not, you'll be in my prayers and I hope you find peace with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. February 3rd, 2013, 1031 AM From Mark Abbott to Josh Keezer Wow that is cool. I think evil twit is exactly what someone called you about 20 years ago and mean motherfucker and someone that was violent so kiss my ass you talk about someone not caring about this lawless girl. Well there, dickhead. I see murder on TV. I see people every day that are probably capable of murder. And get this straight. I never knew Lawless. My brother never knew Lawless. Kevin Williams never knew Lawless. So do do give up that crap. She could have been a whore. Spelled H-O-R-R-O-R. She could have stole money from old people. She could have been a crack whore. But I don't know. And I care less more and more every day. The sad part is this, I couldn't tell you what that girl looked like a week later, and after all this time, I got some dickhead like you on this email. Yes, I am stupid, but you're some rich prick that thinks he is some goody-goody shit or something. Well, you're not. Come back to reality, smartass, and believe me, you don't hurt my feelings. I deal with pieces of shit like you every day, and I did go to church a lot, but there is so many of you fake asses that I do my church in my cell. Wow, after 20 years, someone calls me an evil twit. My feelings are hurt. What, did you find him or her on charge of drugs and get him off for a statement? You should know how that goes. They did that to you plenty. I think following your suit and your buddy Rick, tell him don't come up here no more. I'll speak with Cade, but he may as well stay in the car and do some ticket writing because I got none. I've told you the truth and all your fuckboys. I'm sick of all of you. So do what you do, tough guy. You know what, you smart-ass prick. I may be dumb, but all these bad things that you say, people say. Well, they said all these things about you 20 years ago. And I will admit, I believed every one of them. And that probably didn't help you. And look, you paid the price. That was ugly for the same reason. Well, just because that was done to you, you're not going to do it to me. So save all that bullshit for someone else, you smart-ass prick. I think I told you I don't like smartasses and bullies. And you're not big enough to bully anyone. So this is my last email. I'll leave you with this, I've told nothing but the truth. I didn't know her, never seen her before, and today I'm caring less and less about the entire thing, the mistake, and the only mistake, was me not looking into your case a little more, that I ask for forgiveness from God, not you. I'll put to you one question, find one thing I have ever done to anyone in my life, just one, that is all I ask. I bet you have done some, or should I say the other day someone said that Kieser was always doing some mean shit. February 2, 2013, 12.47 p.m. From Mark Abbott to Josh Kieser. Well, I got your email this morning and I started to answer your questions. You're not my friend. You know nothing about me. You assume just like Pharaoh, which makes you even with him. I don't like bullies. I don't like smartasses. Rick is a smart ass and you are too. So delete me. I emailed you to tell you I made a mistake on not standing up and investigating this case myself so you can hold that hatred all you want. That is the only mistake I made. How many sheriffs is there that would twist everything to get what he wanted? I only know two. One is Farrell and the other is Rick. The last time I spoke a word to Farrell was the day he came by my place and showed me those pictures. I may have said hi at some time, but I don't remember it. I try to pull back a memory and I remember seeing him at court but not speaking to him. If he had some kind of twisted mirror show... I wasn't involved, so save all that crap for yourself. I also emailed Cade. You also should have reached out to me because I knew nothing of the smoke and mirrors. Believe me, if you would have reached out to me, some things would have changed. So save all that accusing me of anything. Don't point your finger at me. You know how that feels. You call yourself a godly man. Your email shows nothing of it. It shows accusations, and that is all, so save it. Something else I want to say. That guy that was in jail with you. I knew his sister well he was really your sully, and he testified you told him something well at a young age i also believed it and this also reinforced the Farrell mirror show which i'm sure that Farrell gave something to this guy but matt my brother was on the phone and somehow you came up yeah i think i read that he recanted his statement and i was kind of shocked by this so matt told me he seen this kid in a bar and asked him why he did this and the kid said well i apologize to keezer And he had to do what he had to do, and I was shocked by this and very mad. And I was also furious at him because he was part of a reinforcement of it all. Do you understand me at all? You seem to feel I'm responsible and you are so wrong. You can twist those statements all you want. One thing about it, I didn't lie, so I got that going for me. All that other stuff you can save. Let me answer your questions. Who killed Lawless? How am I supposed to know? If I knew, I would tell you, get that through your head. How? How am I supposed to know? Three. Did you kill her? No, I'm starting to think I'm emailing Rick. 4. Did my brother kill her? No, what is wrong with you people? Just because I allowed West Drury to think I was Matt, you asked this question, and that statement that Rick brought up here is the craziest thing I ever read. Wow, that don't even make sense. 6 and 7 are same. Come on, Josh, I'm tired of this. Get off me. 8. What is up with the smoke and mirrors? 9. And the rest of your question... The answer is, how the hell am I supposed to know? You act like I know these answers. Come on, Keezer. I hope you close this case and leave me the fuck alone. I will leave you at this. I also have questions, but I can't wait to get to you. P.S. Save the smartass shit. February 3rd, 2013, 1124 AM. From Josh Keezer to Mark Abbott. And scene. Quote, A fool's tongue is long enough to cut his own throat, unquote, Thomas Fuller, M.D. This is how Josh works. He is direct. He's blunt. He provokes. And he gets information. He didn't get a confession or any details about the murder. But we learn more about the moral in Mark. And you know, that's kind of the moral in me. That's just the way it is. Mark Abbott disparaged Michelle. He suggested she could have been a whore and a thief who stole money from old people. He said he cared less and less about the case by the day. He said he couldn't remember what she looked like a week later. He laid the blame of his identification of Josh in the lineup at the feet of Bill Farrell. In fact, he claimed Bill Farrell showed him the lineups at his house. The reports show that Brenda Shivitz and Don Wyndham conducted the lineup at Mark Abbott's house and not Bill Farrell. He blamed himself only that he didn't investigate Josh's case, but that does not change the fact that he was not sure that Josh was the man he saw in the car by the payphone near the crime scene on the night of Michelle Lawless's murder there, there wasn't this was after he had he had been exonerated right but he went to an event uh where they were trying to raise awareness for a guy named ricky clay oh, who was okay. also in prison uh perhaps for a murder that he did not commit right and so um they were trying to raise awareness for that and at that event he uh He saw Kevin and, uh, you know, some of Kevin Williams and some of Kevin Williams' family there. And then one of those people, Kevin's sister, reached out to Josh on Facebook and sent him a, a, a friend request. And then Josh responded. What you're about to hear is an interview that I did with my former colleague, Mark Bliss. Mark Bliss was a longtime reporter at the Southeast Missourian, and he and I tag teamed a report when we were with the Southeast Missourian that published in 2018. So I decided to interview him and get some of his thoughts and some of his recollections of what we found back then. Now's the time to bring up one particular scoop uh, that, we, that we got in 2017. And he's going to mention a name, Gayla. Gayla was a, uh, an ex-girlfriend when we talked to her. She was an ex-girlfriend of Kevin Williams, but she went on the record with us and, uh, frankly, very courageous in doing so
2: okay josh was responding in a facebook post to kevin williams sister and what he said was uh what what josh said was if your brother had anything to do with michelle lawless's murder he needs to come clean
1: right and not only that i mean uh josh's uh facebook message to her said in fact there's evidence out there that shows that he was involved and now is the time to come clean. And so then what happened? Uh...
2: Kevin's sister mentioned
1: it yeah.
2: to to Gaila, who then, you know, mentioned it, showed the Facebook message to Kevin, who got very upset about this. And uh, went, he, he then called up Bill Farrell. Now he knew Bill Farrell, um But in in front of Gayla, basically, he calls and says, hey, we need to meet. And Bill Farrell says, sure. And they go to meet in a parking lot at the Montgomery Bank in Sykeston. Uh, And And so so Kevin, they go in Kevin's. Yeah, they go over there and they get into Bill Farrell's vehicle. Um, Gayla's in the back seat, as I recall she telling me and uh and kevin gets in front front passenger seat uh and with bill farrell and met, talks about this thing and bill according to gala says you know you don't have anything to worry about
1: you don't have anything to worry about i'm your host bob miller you're listening to the lawless Files. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukachak, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. Coming up on The Lawless Files. The judge
0: judge said, well, maybe we need to go ahead and get warrants, because one of the suspects has uh, uh, has a property in Belize. Uh, I was told that he's got money set aside, he's ready to go at to drop of hat in case something happens. The judge asked me, he said, can you, you know, if he decides to leave, I said, he decides to leave, he can leave if I don't have a warrant. There's nothing that says that we can hold him. Uh, he recommended that we could go ahead and get a warrant. My prosecutor said that he didn't think that the other judge would sign off on it. Um, he's, my, my judge said, that's not a problem. And uh, the prosecutor said, I would like to send, see a grand jury and give this to a grand jury. We went back and forth. A couple times when I was explaining what, some of the case, what would happen, the judge stopped, stopped us and he said, he looked at me and he said, they're going to kill you. And I said, yeah, I know that and uh, he said that again and I said some people in this room don't care whether I live or die and I was referring to looking right at the prosecutor again that's one of those you know back and forth things but uh, the judge said if he if we thought we needed we could probably seek a warrant and get warrants warrants more than one and the prosecutor he he uh argued his case that he he felt better that if we could take it to the grand jury he'd get an indictment and we can move from there.